Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. One of the great pleasures I have with the Musicians of the Midnight Sun website is receiving emails from you, the audience, and from musicians I have not heard of, and to hear their story that I know needs to be included on the website. One such story came to me from the daughter of Ray Dubay. Ray was from Fort Smith and attended high school at Sir John Franklin and boarded at Acacia Hall from 1964 to 1968. He joined the music program and was handed a B-flat tenor saxophone. Ray started to play for dances at Acacia Hall and in town at the Elks Club with his band, The Nomads. The band lineup changed over the years, and in 1967, they auditioned for an opportunity to perform on the Centennial Barge. The band scored the gig, changed their name to the Centenaires, bought some new instruments and clothes, and even wrote their final exams early to make it to the launching in late June of 1967. Ray remembers those years at Akecho and the Centennial Barge trip as some of the best times of his life. His recollection after 55 years is amazing, as he introduces us to some of the characters on board the barge and the highlights from their community visits down the Decho River that summer. I start the interview by asking Ray about his early years and how he got bit by the music bug. Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, we moved to Fort Smith from Plamondon, and then uh, I went to school there for one year, and I know there was dances at the armories, but uh, I was pretty young. But I got my first electric guitar when I was there. And then uh, I had buddies, and we partied a lot. So I failed grade nine. But then what happened is that... Uh, the parents got together and, hmm, we've got to do something with our boys. 
So they said, Akecho sounds very good. So that's when we all went to uh, Akecho. DC-3 picked us up and went to Pine Point, picked some others up, and we ended up at Akecho, and uh, I was there for four years. Wow. Okay, if I could hold you there, Ray. You talked a bit about Fort Smith, and I know your time there was brief. I've heard tell that Grandin College or Brainerd Hall had an orchestra there in one of the schools. Do you ever remember that? Well, not really, but I do know that the bishop had a bunch of instruments, and he was teaching, uh, somebody was teaching uh, brass instruments. But I was never in there, so I can't really help you there. Okay. How did you feel about going to Acacia Hall and getting on that airplane? Well, it was certainly different, but being with buddies then uh, wasn't so bad at all. Yeah. Sorry, what year would you have gone to Acacia Hall again? Uh, probably went in, uh, 65. Okay. So 68. Four years, anyways. Okay. So it seemed like you landed at Acacia Hall sort of right at the peak, because from what I know in talking with other musicians, uh, Acacia Hall sort of opened up in, like, 1961 or so. Uh, from what I understand, the supervisors there had a bunch of instruments and the students could sort of, you know, occupy their time as opposed to going out and raising hell and all the rest of that stuff. But it just sort of seemed like around that time in 65 or so, that would have been a musically vibrant place to be going to school. Yeah, it was because I think I started grade nine there. After plunking grade nine in Fort Smith, <laughs> that's... That was one of the reasons why their parents got together and said, hey, we got to do something. Anyways, at Akecho, there was no musical instruments around, but the school did, Sir John Franklin. I took music, and that's when hmm, I went to the music class first day. What do you want to play? I says, I don't know. They gave me a B-flat tenor, and that's what I stuck with. Okay, so the instruments were in the high school and not so much in Acacia Hall then. Right, they were in the high school, yeah. Do you remember who were some of the musicians that were actively playing in those early years at Acacia Hall? Wow. What happened after a little bit, the uh, shop instructor played the C sax, and then we had a trombone, we had trumpet, and we had drums, and we started a little brass band. And then uh, we kept that on. Matter of fact, uh, my escort wasn't very happy, but it, I played about half of my grad dance <laughs> with that band. It was, I still laugh about it because she wasn't happy at all. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> so what kind of music were you playing in your brass band? Do you remember any of the songs that you were playing? It was kind of the oldies and nothing fancy, nothing new. Just waltzes and polkas and stuff. Okay. Yeah. 
and you played around the school. Did you play anywhere else around Yellowknife? Well, once we got the the Centenaires, we weren't called that at the beginning. We were the Nomads. We took over, I think it was from the uh, Arctic Ramblers. Mm -hmm. They they split or left or quit or whatever. And that's when we started uh, our little band. And then uh, we started playing in town. Well, I call it in town because from Akecho, it was always, okay, got to go in town. Mm-hmm. And then we started playing a few times in the hall and then uh, just uh, played as much as we could in town. And then uh, we'd make a whole bunch of, huh, $30 a night each, maybe. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But mostly our dances were every weekend at Akecho. When you say you were playing in the halls in Yellowknife, that would have been either the, the Legion or the Elks. Is that right? Yeah, it would probably have been the Elks. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, how about any of the, the rec halls in, in either of the two mines, either Con or Giant? Did you ever play out there? No, never did, no. Okay. I played a lot of ping pong with the guys from Giant and Con Mines, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not a lot of music. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm just sort of uh, wondering your perspective on the town because you would have seen the town before the government came in in 67 and so in 64 it was more of a mining town yeah it was what do you remember about the town from that time see we were only allowed to go uptown once in a while and then I remember the old town where uh, that uh, shack used to be on top of the rocks there with the airplanes at the float base. Yep. And then the Gold Range Hotel (laughs) used to go there, eat Chinese food. And uh, other than that, hmm, not much. Not much more, yeah. Well, you're busy going to school and... uh... And busy, busy playing music, uh, for sure. So you're playing the saxophone and you're playing with your group, the Nomads. How did the formation of the Centenaires come about? And if you could talk a little bit about that time. That's like I mentioned, the Arctic Ramblers, I think that's who they were. They dismantled or whatever. So then... Between Lawrence Trasher, David Ivalik, Archie Plamondon, Tom Hudson, uh, we started just playing for the Akechu dances. And things kind of picked up from there. And we figured, hey, this is working. So that's kind of where it started. From other musicians that I've talked to, there was like a, a, a little bit of a competition or a talent show to choose the entertainers for the barge. Do you remember that happening? Oh, I certainly do. It was a highlight. There was about, I'm going to guess, another five bands, local bands, and we all went to this hall, 
and they told the crowd, the winners will be on applause. So when we got up there, we weren't the first ones. We were probably in the middle somewheres. And the crowd went totally bonkers. They went wild. So the applause was on our side heavy. And that's how we made it to beat the Battle of the Bands. Wow. Yeah, quite exciting. Beautiful. It sounds like a great night for sure. Oh, yeah, it was. That would have been 1966-67 that you're talking there, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because I remember in 67, we had to write our school exams, final exams, around June 10th or something, because we had to leave for the barge on the 14th of June. Okay, so you had to do your finals early. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No pressure, no pressure. (laughs) No pressure, yeah, right. (laughs) Was there any other kinds of preparations? I'm sort of thinking of, um, did you guys learn a whole bunch of new songs, or did you have to get outfits, or... Uh, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah. In fact, uh, at Akecho, the superintendent by the name of Mr. Boxer was really on my side. And uh, our instruments were pretty old. And anyways, they flew me out to Edmonton. At that time, Fender was kind of the brand that was popular, or I picked, I forget, and bought all new amplifiers, bass guitar, uh, drums, and then flew back to Yellowknife. It was like Christmas. The boys there just, whoo, brand new stuff. Away we go. So that was a prep there. And then once we knew that we were on the barge, we got uh, those uh, red jackets made or bought. We had green shirts that we bought. That was our kind of our uniform. And then black sweatshirts. So we had to get that kind of an order a bit, but uh, it all worked out good. That's amazing. Did they take you guys down or did they just go down and buy the instruments and bring them back? No, I went. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> they gave me, uh, wasn't a credit card. I forget what the heck they did. But anyways, I went to Edmonton, bought the stuff, charged it, or I forget how it went. <laughs> <laughs> and then came back with all the good stuff. Like you say, just like Christmas time. I mean, that's a... <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Te- yeah. Teenager's dream come true. That's amazing. Just amazing, too, that you had supervisors at Akecho Hall that were that supportive and would, would, make, oh, yeah. would make things happen. Okay, you're back from Edmonton, and you've got uh, brand new instruments and, and uniforms and everything like that, and you've done your exams, and you're out the door. Where did the Centennial Barge Tour actually start? How did you get down there? I'll just let you carry that one. We went to Hay River, so we basically flew from Yellowknife to Hay River with all our stuff, and that's where the barge started. 
started was in Hay River. And at that time, I think it was uh, Arthur Lang, the minister, that was there for the opening along with the RCMPs and all that. And, of course, can't forget our Princess Georgina Blondin. She was the uh, princess for the tour. Anyway, she broke the champagne on the barge, and we left from there to cross the lake to Fort Providence, our first stop. My mom and dad had, uh, and my siblings had come to Hay River to see us off and stuff, so it was nice. So what was the lake like at that time of year? I mean, was it really rough? Did any, any of you guys get seasick? <laughs> no, nobody got seasick, okay. and it was it was good, right right through. Because once we took the Mackenzie River, well, then it was just smooth sailing and things went good. Tell me a bit more about the barge, the barges, I guess plural. What kind of things were on the barge? See, <laughs> my memory, you know, we're looking at 55-plus years ago. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think there was an exhibition barge. Okay. And in there, there was the Toronto Dominion building, which was at that time the tallest building in uh, in Canada, I think. Mm-hmm. So they had a model of it. And you know what? I can't think of anything else that I remember that was in that exhibition barge. Okay. But we used to have to tour people through it. But... Uh, Toronto Dominion, that's the only thing that sticks out in my mind. Okay, so you had some extra duties other than just playing music then? Oh, for sure. And then the other barge had the uh, Ferris wheel, popcorn machine, cotton candy, and then we had our sleeping quarters. But we used to have to take turns operating the Ferris wheel. It was all good. Wally Furt was there and uh, that photographer and things were things were happening. From what I understand, Wally Firth was there as, as sort of the reporter on site for CBC. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll stop interjecting here and just let you talk about the trip because you would have, uh, that's where you would have entered the Mackenzie River. And uh, um, yeah, just any uh, stories you have of uh, the highlights, I guess, and, and uh, the communities that you visited? Mm. Well, huh. yeah, just going down the river, we hit uh, the, at one point the ramparts, they call. Mm-hmm. High cliffs with little waterfalls. Oh, it was just unreal. I've got tons of pictures of stuff like that. But uh, anyways, uh, we kept on going. And uh, there's two places I'd like to highlight a bit. One is uh, Fort Norman. We went by Scow And... The next day, sort of thing, after overnighting, and there was on the rocks on the cliff. There's three beaver pelts 
a large, a medium, and a small. That's a natural thing that's built into the rocks. It's just unreal. Mm-hmm. So cool. And then once we hit Inuvik, that was quite a, a scenario. We had partied pretty heavy because every time we'd stop at a settlement and play, they'd always give us a drum dance after and lots of 24-hour wine with floating raisins and stuff. (laughs) After the first glass, hmm, not too bad. (laughs) Anyways, uh, when we got uh, close to about 10 miles out of uh, Inuvik, I still remember the captain. Zach was his name. Because there was the captain, first, second mate, and an engineer on board. Yeah. Anyways, he come in into our bunk shack and gave us supreme hell. Come on, you guys. Get out of bed. Inuvik's got a big welcoming committee, and you guys are zonked. Oh, that woke us up. Anyways, so what we ended up by doing was, okay, if they're all there, let's give them a show. So we hauled our instruments on top the barge and cranked the heck out of those amplifiers. I'm I'm surprised it didn't blow. (laughs) We put balloons around, and then uh, we started playing. And we got close to Inuvik, and there was a whole flotilla of boats, all decorated up, and they just followed us in. And there was even a scow, which I really remember good, loaded with fish poles, like uh, they were drying fish on these long poles mm-hmm. in the scow. It just to me that hits my fancy so perfect. Wow. Anyways, the dock was full, full, full of people. We had a great time that night and yeah, totally good. With each of the communities, would you guys be performing on the barge or would you go up into the community and play in a community hall if they had one? We never played on the barge at all. We played in different venues like uh, shops, mechanical shops, <laughs> and they would clean them up to a point. And uh, Rick Williams with his big hammered organ that weighed a ton, <laughs> we had to unload that thing every time. All our instruments, I remember one time uh, there was no pickups. A guy come down with a caterpillar and a wagon, and we loaded up under and it was that type of deal that we had to, but never played on the barge itself. It was always in a makeshift place somewhere in the community. So you would play your music and have a dance, and it sounds like they would bring in their traditional drum music and stuff like that as well, right? It's, was that, yeah. that was pretty yeah. normal all the way across? Yeah, pretty normal. And then the captain had said, at 7 o'clock, I'm leaving. I'm going to blow the horn, and if you're not here, 
your state. (laughs) There's a couple times there I remember you could hear the damn horn. Oh, no. Rush like crazy and make it. That's it. Yeah. Then we'd sleep. Just until, yeah, and then you'd sleep until you got to the next town. Oh, it sounds amazing. And for a, a couple times, these girls would follow us in a scow. We'd leave, and then these pretty soon we see the scow coming, and it's three, four girls. They wanted to tag along. Huh. <laughs> We'd, we'd wave them off and say, hey, turn around, because we wanted to meet some other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, the other good part that I still recall and really enjoy is Arctic Red River. I'm sure there wasn't much more than about 70 people there. And once we got there, they had a nice welcome sign and the whole bit. But we weren't allowed to step on shore till chief and council had a meeting. And the meeting was about, do we allow these guys to come in in our community? Anyways, they had their their chit-chat and, yeah, you guys can come on out. So... One classroom school, and we all piled in there. And you know what? It the eighty-year-olds and eighty-five-year-olds there—they were just dancing and kicking, and oh, it was awesome. Anyways, plus with the Ferris wheel and the popcorn and cotton candy. Well, those kids and adults had never seen that before. Anyways, I could, I've got pictures of the little kids there. They're bloated with popcorn and stuff. I'm sure they must have been sick for two days. And uh, the Ferris wheel, well, that was a big hit. And for a little place, it turned out to be noteworthy, put it that way. I remember from Wally, he he was sort of saying that they got the Ferris wheel secondhand and that the thing was always breaking down. Yeah. And I <laughs> and I remember one time I was operating it and pretty soon nuts and bolts are landing on the floor. Whoa. <laughs> Shut it down, unloaded the people, had the engineer and he worked on it and we said no. Tomorrow on the on the travel, fix it. Mm. So he had to tighten every bolt that there was on there, and there's a lot. That scared the hell out of me. And you start seeing nuts and bolts come down on the floor with people on it. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that would be pretty scary for sure. Yeah, it was, yeah. So you were on the barge for the whole summer. Minus two weeks. Once we ended up in Tuck, then flew to, yeah, flew back to Yellowknife, and then we had two weeks off. So 
I came back to Fort Smith for those two weeks, but then I went to Fort McMurray to visit. Then as we came back to join up again, we started off in Yellowknife, and we went to Snowdrift, Reliance, Fort Smith. But in Fort Smith, we didn't bring the Ferris wheel and all that because of the rapids. Mm-hmm. It was just us guys. We had a really good evening there playing at the Frontier Village. And uh, huh, that was the end of the tour. And we went back home, finished off the, what was left of the summer. And then uh, I went back there again in 68 to start school again. If I could take you back, I guess, just to, and and that's interesting because nobody's ever really sort of talked about the second half of the barge tour uh, around Great Slave Lake. You got to Tuck, and uh, I don't know, what was the weather like at that time of year? That would have been, what, early August, maybe? Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. It wasn't snowing or anything up there, though, was it? No, no, it was. I can't remember bad weather throughout the whole summer, really. Amazing. Okay. We spent a lot of time sleeping, but... <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, imagine between the playing and the hosting and all the rest of that stuff, it would have been uh, sort of like being on the road with any kind of a band that way and, and one-nighters for however long it took. Was it about a month that you were on the river tour? Do you remember how long that took? The first time, yeah, a month. Two weeks off and then another two weeks later. Okay. After. To go around the lake. About. Yeah. But see, what happened to me, Pat, is that uh, I found I was better useful, like I was playing the sax at every stop, but then I kind of dwindled down because I found that I was better at visiting and communicating with the local people, and uh, I loved it that way. So uh, I kind of sort of gave it up, put it that way, in short. I remember Fort Good Hope, I think it was. I recruited two young girls to be go-go girls on the stage. <laughs> wow, that made their day, I, I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had fun. We all had fun, you know, at every stop. I can only imagine and try and visualize and, and, and dream about it because it sounded like just an, an amazing time, but I can see you're almost more like a tour manager or a production manager or something like that and would take on more of that role of organizing, you know, the community and you you knew what you had on the barge and then just sort of bring that together into an event as as, uh, as good as you could make it that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. Were there other musicians that sort of dropped in and dropped out as the tour was happening, or was it just you guys? It was just us. And that little short cook, I call her short because she was four foot nothing. She couldn't even reach the cupboard for salt and pepper or plates. We had to do that for her. 
she was a good cook, and then she did her little number at night at uh, wherever we played. She had a <laughs> put on a little gun belt and a cowboy hat, and she'd sing something, and people would clap, and then she was over. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so even the cook had a, had a part in the show that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the Indian princess, Georgina, she didn't sing or nothing like that. She had two dresses, a white one and a brown one, made out of caribou. Very nice gal. Yeah, she was from Fort Providence, I think. But it seemed like everything else was... Uh... Um, I don't know, just about picture perfect there. Just sort of imagining a flotilla of barges uh, tootling on down the Mackenzie River. It just, uh, uh, just like I say, it just seems uh, picture perfect. No, it was a wonderful trip, put it that way. Wonderful summer right through. And uh, I'll never regret it. And we're lucky enough to have been able to be on it to begin with. It was one of those good things that had happened to me in Yellowknife. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I might be jumping ahead in something here, but uh, at Akecho, there was a lot of talented artists. And one of them painted a mural on the corner of the big dining room all the way down, and he painted a waterfall. And then at the bottom of the waterfall painting, we put polythene on the, all on the stage. Then we hauled fresh moss from the bush and laid the whole stage with moss. And in the middle... We had a little creek flowing. I had a circulating pump, and it looked like it, the water was coming from the waterfall, and it would flow down into a big tub and then circulate. And we had all the instruments on that moss. That was our icebreaker dance. What a show. It was just fantastic. For me, for four years, that was one of my, hmm, I have to say, other than being away from home, it was my best years. I had opportunities that I would have never, never have. And one of them was uh, I was designated to meet Madame Vanier at the airport and escort her to Acacio which was a highlight. Then I had breakfast with Pierre Trudeau, elbow to elbow, because I was bilingual. So those are a couple things that would have never happened if uh, I wouldn't have been at Akejo. So I just wanted to mention that, because it's not bragging, but I'm just saying that it was a good opportunity. Okay, well, this has just been great. Thanks again, Ray. Thanks, Pat. You take care. Righto. Have a good day. I would like to thank Ray for sharing his rich musical life story with me.
musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.